Right. So we've gone through the first six books. Now we're to the book of Judges. Last time, uh, our study of Joshua left us wondering, just kind of like Deuteronomy left us wondering. Uh, If you remember, uh, Joshua is uh, standing over all the people, talking to the people, and he tells the people, um, you're not able to serve the Lord. Right? They all say, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you're not able to, for he is a holy God, a jealous God, who will not forgive your transgressions or sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. You remember that from the book of Joshua. So as, as we go into the book of Judges now, we've got this anticipation. Moses has said, you're not going to serve the Lord. You're going to fall away. And now Joshua also says, you're not going to serve the Lord. You're going to fall away. So what's going to happen in the book of Judges? If you've studied this book before, you probably know uh, this book is full of interesting stories. uh, But really, it's kind of a depressing book. Uh, I really did not want to study a depressing book this week. Uh, With all the things that have been going on in our lives, I wanted an encouraging book. Let's go back into Joshua. But this is a very depressing book. Uh, and, and really, the question we need to be thinking about as we study this is, uh, what is our attitude toward the Word of God? That's essentially uh, what this book helps us to see and understand, is uh, what is our attitude toward the Word of God, and what is the importance of having the right attitude toward the Word of God? Uh, as we study this book, we see the absence of understanding leads to destruction, uh, and this is This is essentially the absence of care, consideration about God's Word. Uh, We live in a world today that doesn't really care anything about the Bible, right? I mean, what do they care? The Bible is just this old book uh, that is is inconsequential, doesn't matter. Um, It's outdated. It's, it's from primitive times and primitive people. We have all our technology. We have all these wonderful things in our lives. We're these amazing people. Uh, we're not oppressed by anybody. We've got all this freedom, uh, and we are, we are so awesome. What do we need the Bible for? What do we need the God of the Bible for? He didn't give us these things. We accomplish these things on our own. It's kind of this mentality uh, uh, toward the Bible. And if we're not careful... Uh, that can spill over into us. And I think as we study this book, hopefully we understand that the Judges, the book of Judges, is all about the fall of Israel over and over and over and over again. And we can fall into those same kind of traps that they fell into. So we have to be very careful as we study this book and recognize the message of this book is that if we refuse to know the Word of God, then we will share in the curses of Israel. Now, we're not uh, like Israel in that uh, sense of God promising them and having that covenant with them that as long as you're righteous, all these good things will happen to you, and and whenever you fall, I'm going to bring all these curses. Obviously, that was Israel. Uh, But essentially, this is the way nations have always been, that nations that glorify God, he, He glorifies, He raises up, and nations that refuse to listen to God and do his will, he brings maybe an evil nation against them or some other nation uh, to oppress them and lifts up someone else. So that's essentially the message of this whole book, is that if we refuse to listen to the word of God, um, we're going to fall into these same kind of traps. It's really a sad book. 
uh, that I'm sorry to have to, to talk about, uh, but it is something we all need to hear and understand uh, because this is the reality of the world we live in. We're not great people. Uh, we, we are much like Israel in many ways, and that's the sad part of it. Uh, like the book of Joshua, as we study through this book, there's going to be a number of stories, and I'm going to have to overlook a number of details in the stories for the sake of time. Uh, but it's a really fun book to read through and see all these interesting things that happen. There may, be, may not be an explanation behind why these things are happening, uh, but there's a number of interesting things that happen. And I really encourage you to, to study this book on your own. And I hope that the things that I give you tonight will help you understand an overview of what this book is really all about for your own studies. As I said, Joshua ended with bad news. <laughs> You're not going to be able to serve the Lord, uh, is essentially how Joshua ended his book. Uh, and whenever we get to verse 31 of Joshua 24, we read, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work the Lord did for Israel. That There is a time period of obedience here. Uh, the, the fall off is not immediate. Joshua doesn't die and then everybody immediately falls away. But it's, it's this gradual thing that as a new generation comes up, there is a falling away that takes place. Uh, and, and this is what it kind of set us up for this last, at, at the very end of Joshua. They knew the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders, but then we're just like, well, what about after that? And Judges tells us about what happened after that. The very first verse says, after the death of Joshua, after the death of jo Joshua, Joshua's over. This is what this book is about. Uh, what's going to happen after his death? And essentially what happens is the people uh, of Israel inquire of the Lord, asking who's going to go up and fight the Canaanites? And God says Judah's going to go up. So Judah goes up in chapter 1 to fight against the Canaanites, and they go up against them, and, and they conquer the Canaanites. They bring Simeon along with them, and, and it seems like, oh, great, things are going good. Joshua didn't conquer all of the land of Israel. There were some territories that had not been conquered, but by and large, Israel was the dominant force in the land of the Canaanites. And so now they're going to conquer the rest, it seems like. But unfortunately, as Judah goes out and starts conquering these Canaanites, we start to see some odd things that pop up. Um, in chapter 19, we read that they were unable to conquer some in the, the land of Judah. Uh, he was, they were unable to drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. This picture of chariots of iron is something that we remember from Joshua a little bit. There's some talk of it, but now it seems like they're afraid of these chariots of iron. God has shown he can destroy all of the enemies of the Lord by bringing down hailstones and, and all kinds of destruction. They don't even have to do much, but they're terrified of these chariots of iron, so they, they refuse to go out and fight. And then we read that after they conquer Jerusalem, they don't clear out all the enemies in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jebusites end up taking back over that city. And so there's kind of this little stumble that happens. Then the next tribe that goes up against their enemies is uh, the house of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they go up against Bethel, and they conquer Bethel. And then after that, we read in 27 through 29 of chapter 1, they stop. Uh, they don't continue to drive out the inhabitants of the land. It's like, wait a second. 
So Judah has had great success. Now Ephraim and, and Manasseh are having great success. But then all of a sudden, verse 27, uh, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun, you keep going down the line, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And then verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Now it seems like the inhabitants are driving out the Israelites. Everything seems to be falling apart. And the people, it seems, are just done fighting against the, the enemies in the land. They're, they're done. They don't want anything to do with this battle anymore. They're, they're, they're finished. Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord is mentioned. The angel of the Lord is mentioned multiple times throughout the book of, of Judges, and there's some very interesting things that go on with the angel of the Lord. But he was first mentioned back in Joshua. Uh, you remember Joshua was about to go in and conquer Jericho, and the angel of the Lord was up on this mountain, and he goes up to him and he says, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he says, No, I am the commander of the, the Lord's armies. And it's like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, the commander of the Lord's armies, this is a big deal. This is the guy. This is the angel of the Lord that conquers the Lord's enemies. So here it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, This angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place, Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Notice this angel of the Lord comes and says, you're not willing to do what I've commanded you to do. You're not willing to go into this land that is, is flowing with milk and honey and conquer your enemies. It's very much like what happened back in Numbers, right? They see the enemy, they're scared, and they don't want to go in and fight. And now the angel of the Lord says, if you're not going to do that, then I'm just going to leave them. I'm done fighting for you. Now your opportunity is passed, and these people are going to stick around, and they're going to be thorns in your side. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, he kind of starts over, and he tells us a summary of essentially what the entire book is going to be about. Uh, it goes back. He says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And then verse 8, Joshua died at 110 years old. And verse 10, all that, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. You get a picture kind of starting over. Everybody dies. Now there's a generation that doesn't know the Lord, that has not learned about God's word uh, and who God is and what God has done for his people. And then it, it tells us the people, after being brought into this land and having all this rest, they decided in verse 11 to do what is evil, to serve the Baals and to abandon the Lord. 
Uh, and so God's anger, verse 14, is kindled against them. And he gives them over to plunderers and lets them be plundered and he lets them be judged. And, and as a result, they cry out to the Lord uh, and they, they ask God to, to help them. And God raises up judges in verse 18. He raised up judges for them and the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies uh, all the days of that judge. And, and so you kind of get this uh, cycle that, that is described in this whole section of Israel receiving rest. They get comfortable. They don't know what the word of God is. They don't know the Lord. Then they decide to sin against the Lord. And as a result of the sin, God brings about judgment. And then after the judgment comes with all this oppression from outside nations, they, they repent. They cry out to God. God brings in a deliverer, a, a military deliverer, a judge, who saves them from their oppression. And then they have rest for a period of time, and then they sin, and then there's judgment, and then there's repentance, and then there's a new judge that rises up. And it just goes like this over and over and over again in the book of Judges. That is the cycle that we see. Because God has given, uh, has, has allowed for the nations to continue to live in the land in order to bring about this continual discipline for his people. Verse 21, he says, uh, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left the nations and didn't drive them out and he didn't give them into the hand of, of Joshua or any of those uh, in the land. So God has decided because of the rebellion of the people, I'm going to leave these nations in the land so that they can constantly be testing my people's heart to see if they truly love me more than any of these gods or more than the nations. And we know how this is going to go. If we've studied much of the Old Testament at all, uh, it, it's not going to go well. But as we study, this is very much that cycle happens over and over and over again. It's kind of this depressing thing. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, um, Their daughters they took to themselves as wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. There's this intermixing with the nations that ends up resulting in uh, the people falling away into idolatry, and so it all begins. In chapter 3, verse 7, uh, we start all of the different judges being described. Uh, there are 12 judges described in the book of Judges. And then uh, after the book of Judges, we have Eli, who's a judge, and Samuel, who's a judge. So there's 14 judges overall, uh, 12 just found in this book. Um, and as we go through each, some of them are given a lot more time and a lot more weight than others. But there's usually some uh, interesting idea or thought in the judge that just kind of makes you wonder, what is God trying to get across to us? as he describes this judge, and, and what is he trying to tell us about the people of Israel and their sins, and, and what is he trying to tell us about leadership, and what is he trying to tell us about himself? The first judge we see is Othniel. Othniel is the brother of Caleb. If you remember, Joshua and Caleb both uh, came back from the land having spied it out, saying it's a good land and God will give us the land. Caleb uh, is, is a great man. And then Othniel comes in as being a judge who's going to deliver the people from the Mesopotamians 
who have, who have risen up against Israel as a result of their sins. And you kind of see this pattern in, in all of these events. Verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and then verse 8, he sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. And, and that's for 18 years. And then verse 9, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then God delivered them with Othniel. Uh, it says the spirit of the Lord was upon him and they found deliverance. In verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years. You see that pattern being laid out even in this very first story of Othniel. Uh, after Othniel, they had rest for 40 years, so here's the rest that God has promised them, but of course it's a temporary rest. It's not the, the perpetual rest, the eternal rest that God was hoping to give them. And then another, uh, at another point, Israel sins. I guess Othniel passes away, and now uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, rises up against Israel. And then we read about the judge after the people cry out to the Lord, verse 15, we read about the judge named Ehud. And this story of Ehud is really fascinating. It's really kind of odd. Um, Ehud goes into uh, the area where the king is to offer up the tribute uh, for, for Israel. And as he's offering it up, he tells uh, Eglon, I've I got a secret, and, and, and it's a secret from God. And so he goes in, and he gets close, and everybody leaves the room. And, and whenever he gets close, he's got a dagger in his leg, and he pulls it out, and he sticks it into Eglon. And Eglon's this big, fat guy, uh, and it just sticks in so much that you can't even see the dagger anymore. Uh, and it kills Eglon. And it's just it's this weird story. Uh, but then Ehud escapes, and then he ends up helping the people conquer the Moabites. And then it says at the very end of this, verse 30, the land has rest for 80 years. The next judge is Shamgar. Shamgar has one verse and it's like tiny uh, compared to any other judge, uh, but it tells us he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad uh, and saves Israel. So that's Shamgar. And then chapter 4 and 5 tell us about Deborah. Well, this is kind of interesting, right? Wait, there's, there's a female who's a judge. Deborah is, is a prophetess, and it says in verse 4, who was also judging Israel at that time. The Canaanites had decided to rise up against Israel, and Deborah became a prophetess, and then she became a judge over Israel. And she goes to Barak and tells him to go up against the Canaanites. Surely God's given them into your hand. And he says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. Uh, and, and you just kind of wonder, what is God trying to say in this? Like, what is the state of Israel that they, that, that Barak, this man is, who's, who's supposed to be the one who conquers all the enemy, is saying, I'm not going to go unless uh, you go with me. A woman judge, like, uh, she's going to have to fight the battle. And, and she's not only going to be a prophetess, but she's going to be someone who fights in the battle. And, and because of that, Deborah tells uh, Barak, all the glory of this battle is going to be taken away from you. And we see that happens as Sisera, the commander of, Jabin, uh, of Jabin's army, uh, ends up being killed by a woman in her tent. Jael, Jael, however you say that, uh, another really odd graphic scene, uh, stabs him or, or takes it, uh, has him sleep, gives him milk, takes a tent peg, slams it into his head and into the dirt. Wow, okay, that's pretty graphic, pretty disgusting, um, but... It takes away the glory of Barrett because he was unwilling to go uh, without taking Deborah with him. He, he didn't have faith. He didn't have trust in God. And, and really, this is really what's lacking in Israel as they have refused to go out and fight all these battles. What's been lacking in Israel is faith. They don't have faith. 
to go and to fight against the enemies. Uh, they don't believe that God is going to save them, that God is going to help them uh, destroy their enemies and find rest again. But God does, and he gives the people rest. And as a result, in chapter 5, uh, Deborah and Barak sing a song uh, to the Lord, praising him for the great conquering that he has done. In chapter 6, we see uh, that the Midianites uh, uh, start to oppress Israel. Midianites are actually kind of more shepherds. They, they were more nomadic people. Um, you know, Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. Uh, but but they, would, they would come in to Israel like locusts, and they would just eat up all the harvest, and they would eat up all the cattle, uh, and they would oppress Israel in this way. And Israel was terrified of them. Uh, and so Israel cries out to the Lord, in verse 7, and then uh, God sends a prophet to Israel before sending a deliverer. He says uh, in verse 8, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God comes in and reminds them of what he's done and what they're supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to be afraid of these physical enemies that are all around them because God has already uh, pr promised to protect them, but they refuse to obey the Lord. And as they continually refuse to obey the Lord, he's continually bringing these evil people to, to oppress Israel. Then verse 11, the angel of the Lord shows up again. Oh, there's the angel of the Lord. And he finds Gideon, uh, who is, in, it seems, the weakest man in the weakest tribe. This is the way he describes, uh, he describes in verse 15. Uh, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the, the least in my father's house. So here's Gideon, who seems to be very weak. And as you go through this, you see he has very little faith and very little trust in God throughout Gideon's story. He asked God repeatedly to prove to him that he is going to help him uh, fight against the Midianites. And as a result of all this, God, God works with Gideon. They, they pull down, uh, he pulls down this altar of Baal, and, and all these people come to Gideon whenever he calls for them. 32,000 men come, and God says, I, that's too many. Let's go down to 300. Uh, and he gets it all down to 300 men, and they go up against the Midianites and conquer them. And the, the message God wanted to send in verse 2 is, uh, chapter 7, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midians into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away to Mount Gilead. And, and 22,000 uh, return, 10,000 remain. And then he has them lap up water or, or drink water, and he determines who's going to stay. And only 300 men stay. But notice the purpose behind him calling down the number to, to make sure Israel understands. You're not able to do this on your own. You should know that. But you can do this through me. And I'm making it clear, you're not doing this uh, because you're so great and you're so wonderful and you have all these great abilities. I am the one who does this for you. 
And that, that's intended, I think, to remove all their fear from all these evil nations that keep oppressing them. God has promised to be with them even though they rebel against him. He's not going to remove any more of the people of the land, it seems, at this point. But he is with them and he will protect them if they put their trust and their faith in God. And if they obey his commands and follow his rules. But at the end of Gideon's life, things kind of take a turn for the worse. Gideon starts to, to have vengeance, and he kind of gets proud and boastful as he goes out and, and fights against the king of Midian. Uh, and then he has all the people say, rule over us, you and your sons, you be our king. And he says, no, no, uh, I will never be your king. God is your king. But then he says, give me all your gold. I'm going to make a golden ephod. Uh, and all the people end up worshiping this golden ephod and whoring after it, the, word, the, the Bible says. So he ends up leading the people astray. Like, wait, this is a judge. This is someone who's supposed to turn the people to the Lord. He's delivering the people and helping the people, but instead he ends up bringing great harm to the people. And as a result, what we read in verse 33 is, as soon, of chapter 8, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal perish uh, their god. They, they go right back into idolatry uh, with all of Gideon's sons. And they, they try to set up Gideon's sons to be their kings. And eventually God sets up, uh, or God, eventually they set up one of Gideon's sons, who's uh, the son of a concubine, to be their king. Uh, in, in chapter 9, and the whole story here is about how this son of Gideon uh, decides, I want to be king, so he gets them to kill all the rest of the sons of Gideon, so he's the best one. And then after he has them all killed, he has a fight with the city that killed them, and he goes against them to destroy them, and then he goes and gets mad at another city, he goes to destroy it, and a woman in that city throws a millstone and, and kills Abimelech, and he dies. And so um, the only son of Gideon that survives, his name is Jotham, and whenever all this starts to take place, Jotham prophesies uh, that, that God's going to kill you, Abimelech, and he's going to kill all those in Shechem who killed all the sons of Gideon. Uh, and that's very much what happens in this whole story. Abimelech, I was always taught, was a judge. Um, you know, if you remember all the judges, Othniel, Ehud, Shangar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, you know, and then Abs uh, Ibsen, Elon, Abdon, Samson, Eli, Samuel. Like, that's the way I've got it in my mind. Abimelech's not a judge, and then I was like, oh man, my whole system's broken, but, but, but he's not even a judge. He's just a bad character that, that kind of comes in and takes control of the land because all the people have, have gone after these idols, and this is actually a form of judgment, I, I would say, against God's people, and God delivers Israel from Abimelech and Shechem uh, and, and all those evil people. Uh, instead of raising up a judge. So it's kind of this little anomaly in the book. Uh, in chapter 10, we read about the sixth and seventh judge, Tola and Jer, and not much information is really given about them other than where they're from and uh, the fact that Jer had uh, sons and donkeys and, and all of this kind of stuff, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and then we get to chapter 10, verse 6 through 16, which again is, is a little different. 
The people do evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. God raises up the Philistines and the Ammonites, who they're worshiping their gods, raises them up uh, and gives them into the hand and gives Israel into their hand for 18 years. And the people cry out to the Lord and listen to what happens. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. And, the, and, and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go out, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen let them save you in the time of your distress. What? God is done with Israel. I, I'm not going to save you anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm finished, it seems. And as a result, verse 15, the people of Israel say to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. And it says, He became impatient over the misery of Israel. And so then we read about the next judge, Jephthah. Uh, so isn't this interesting that God seems to say, I'm, not, I'm done, you know, and then they actually show fruit of repentance, and he turns around and he says, okay, uh, I'm, I'm tired of seeing you be in misery, and he, he, he shows mercy and compassion toward them yet again by rising up someone by the name of Jephthah. Jephthah is a Gileadite. Um, which means he lives in the region of Gilead, uh, which is where uh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, they, they, they came into that land. Uh, so he's probably from one of those tribes. But he is the son of a prostitute. Uh, and so he was actually rejected by his family, saying, you have no inheritance in the land. And, and then after that, they start to be oppressed by the Ammonites, and they say, well, who's a mightier man than Jephthah? We need Jephthah to help him. So they take this man, Jephthah, who is the son of a prostitute, who they have rejected, and they say, we want you to be the head over us. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be the head over you, and I'll go fight against the Ammonites. And he does, and he ends up defeating the Ammonites. And at the end of the battle, he, he looks up and he says, God, uh, before the battle, he says, if you will deliver these Ammonites into my hand, I will give you whatever comes out to me in a burnt offering to you. And he defeats the Ammonites, and he comes home, and the first thing that comes out of his house is his only daughter, the only child he has. And, and it's really weird. Uh, what happens to his daughter, we don't know. Uh, but it seems as though she, she has two months to go and to weep about her virginity, and then we don't really, it doesn't tell us what happens to her. Did he burn her? Uh, you know, I hope not. Uh, but that, you know, there's no information given to really help us understand uh, what happens to her. But for whatever reason, she is now, uh, she's not uh, allowed to be his daughter and go through uh, marriage and, and continue his lineage. Like, none of that's going to end up happening. Uh, and we don't know exactly what took place. After this, the Ephraimites, uh, part of Israel, comes in real upset about the fact that Jephthah didn't invite them to kill the, the Ammonites. And so Jephthah gets mad, and he ends up killing like 42,000 Ephraimites, Israelites, uh, and, and causing a lot of harm in Israel as a result. Uh, so he's, he's this judge of Israel that saves Israel, but then causes a lot of pain and suffering in Israel. Uh, and then in chapter, eight, or chapter 12, verse 8, uh, we get to 
three more judges. Uh, and these are kind of really quick. Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. And all of these are just uh, judges who served for a very short amount of time. Very little information is given other than where they're from and the fact that they had sons uh, and, and grandsons and, and rode on donkeys and, and served Israel for all these years, which is interesting, but I don't know really what to do with those judges. Uh, and then we get to Samson in chapters 13 through 16. Uh, Samson is an interesting judge because of all the things that happen in his life. As he goes through, uh, we really see he's not a great guy. Uh, at the very beginning, we see the Philistines are the ones who are against Israel at this time, and they've oppressed Israel for 40 years. And there's a married couple in Israel who are barren, and God, uh, the angel of the Lord, again comes to them and tells them, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to be a Nazarite. So don't drink any wine. He tells the mom, don't drink any wine or eat anything unclean because he's not supposed to do any of those things. He's going to be a Nazarite all the days of his life. And you're not going to cut his hair. He is this uh, special son who is set aside for the Lord. And when Samson comes, uh, we see he's not special. <laughs> like he is, he is just as bad as anybody. Uh, and he actually has an affection for Philistine women. He has this desire for Philistine women. Uh, he wants to marry them and intermarry with the Philistines. And this is the way that God is going to help save the people of Israel by using Samson, who loves the Philistine women, uh, and destroying the Philistines with Samson. So uh, the story of Samson is where he goes through and he kills a number of Philistines uh, who... Um, cheat in a riddle that he gives and then he eats from or he kills a lion he eats from it which he's not supposed to touch an, uh, you know, a dead animal uh, and he eats the honey from it uh, we have him drinking wine at a feast and he's doing things that he's not supposed to do as a Nazarite and then he decides to uh, get together with a lady named Delilah in chapter 16. Uh, Delilah for some reason has won Samson over, and she continue, continuously asks him, how can we remove your power? And every time he tells her, and she tries it, and then tries to overtake him, and doesn't, and then she asks him again, and they try to overtake him, and they can't, because he's lying to them, he's, he's just playing around, and then finally he tells them, cut my hair, and these Philistines come in, and they capture him, and he has no strength. Uh, apparently he became proud and God removed the strength that he had given Samson and he's no longer able to conquer his enemies and break free from the bonds that enslave him. Uh, and the Philistines then take him, they, they, they pluck out his eyes, make him blind, uh, and they use him as a source of entertainment for the Philistines and they have this big feast, this big party because Samson was such a thorn in their side and now he has been defeated uh, and they gather this huge group of people and they, they show Samson off and, and his hair starts to grow back it says and then he turns to the Lord and he says Lord just please remember me and strengthen me this one time so that I can avenge the Philistines for my two eyes, and he pushes over pillars that hold the whole house up and kills 3,000 Philistines. So that's the story of Samson. So as we're looking at all these different judges, who paints that perfect picture? <laughs> who is like Joshua? Who is like Moses? None of them. 
None of them. They all fail horribly and show themselves to be just as evil as the world around them. They make all kinds of mistakes and they do all kinds of things wrong. Uh, and so, but, but we see kind of a degradation that they're getting worse and they're getting worse and worse and worse. And then we get to chapter 17 through 21 and it goes away from the judges to start discussing Israel and help us understand what's going on in Israel a little bit more. Why is it that Israel is so bad? What are they doing wrong? Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 17. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now go over to chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The very beginning starts out telling us this information, and at the very end he comes back around to this very fact. There's not a king in Israel. There's all these judges, but God never sets anyone up to be their king. And the way that the writers here look at this is, this is our problem. There is no king to show us the way. There is no one to, to guide us and help us to see what we ought to be doing. And, and, it's, and this is really the problem uh, that Israel has. There's no king in Israel. And everybody's just doing whatever's right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. This is going to be interesting later. But that's essentially the mentality uh, that we get throughout this is the lack of king has resulted in a lack of desire to do anything God has said. Everybody just does what they want to do uh, because it feels good, because the opportunity is there, and it seems like a good idea at the time. Then in this section, really, though, you get two stories that illustrate this picture of doing what's right in your own eyes. The first story is chapter 17 and 18, where uh, essentially you see how Israel is kind of just playing religion. They're not really worshiping God the way he has commanded. They've just kind of made up a system of worship. Uh, look at the first six verses of chapter 17. Tell me if you or just kind of think, what's wrong with this? And, and try to understand and point out and think about the things that are wrong in this whole storyline as it begins. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. <laughs> now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The number of things that are wrong with this should jump off of the page, if we're familiar with the law at all. Uh, that this man uh, is, is uh, horrible because he takes from his own mother 
And then he comes back to the mother after she has said a curse, vowed a curse against the one who took her money and says, I've got it here. Here's it back. Oh, well, that's good. And then she says, bless you. Wait a second. Why are you blessing him? He, he stole from you. Uh, she doesn't condemn him. She doesn't punish him. But she instead says, it seems like it's a very, uh, you know, gracious thing. Uh, I'm going to dedicate 200 of these shekels to the Lord, which is not 20%, right? 1100, uh, 20% would be 210. So she shortchanges what she's supposed to give for the guilt offering. But she says, I'm going to take 200 of these shekels and pay for you. But instead of giving it to the Lord's treasury, she makes up images to worship. She builds idols like the rest of the nations around her. And then she builds a shrine and ordains, Micah ends up ordaining one of his sons to become a priest. He's not supposed to be a priest. He's of the hill country of Ephraim. He is not of the priest lineage. So why in the world is he thinking he can set up one of his sons as priests? Well, they've got gods right there. Now they need a priest. Then the next section, chapter 17, verse 7 through 13, uh, a priest is wandering and sojourning, and he comes up upon Micah, and Micah says, hey, you're, you're a Levite. He's not a priest. You're a Levite. Why don't you be a priest for us? Well, he's not a priest. He's not supposed to be performing priestly duties. He's just a Levite. He's one who's supposed to protect and to teach the law of the Lord. So he decides, yeah, hey, that sounds good. I'll make some money here. I'll stay with you, Micah, and I'll be your priest. And Micah says, uh, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. His whole mentality about the priesthood and about worshiping God is just so twisted. Uh, I'm going to do all these things to please the Lord, and then he's going to bless me. Then in chapter 18, we go from this family problem to spreading out to a Levite, uh, and now it goes even further in chapter 18 to all the tribe of Dan. Uh, it starts out, in those days there was no king in Israel, right? Reminding us, that's the reason why all this is happening, apparently. Uh, and this tribe of Dan has been run off from their land by the Amorites, and we read that back in chapter 1, and now uh, they've decided we're going to go somewhere that it's easy. And they go, uh, they send spies out, and they go into this land up in Ephraim, where Micah is living, and, and they decide to conquer an unsuspecting people in that land. And whenever they come into that area, they end up taking all of Micah's, they just steal all of Micah's metal images for themselves, and they steal his priest to be their priest so that they can then worship God and please God. Even though they have ran away from the land that they're supposed to conquer and decided to take over a city that's not even theirs, of uh, unsuspecting people, it seems like a good, good people, and they steal a priest and they steal metal images to worship God. All of this just shows the, the moral decay that has taken place in this land. And then we have this big uh, wow at the, at the end of chapter 18, verse 30. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity in the land. Notice who this is. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons. The priest that was sojourning, that Micah took in, that now the Danites have taken in, is the, the grandson of Moses. Oh, well, he's got to be the greatest priest ever, except the sons of Moses weren't priests. The sons of Aaron were priests. Uh, and, and this guy is teaching them with metal images and carved images. He's not teaching them about the law of the Lord. 
Then you have another really scary story in chapters 19 through 21 where a Levite has a concubine who has been adulterous. He accepts her back in in chapter 19. He forgives her. They go into Gibeah thinking, oh, this is a land of Israelites. Surely I'll be safe. And Gibeah has become like Sodom. And they push against him to get, his, to get him to come out so that they can rape him. But he just throws out his concubine and shuts the door. And they rape her to the point where she dies. And then he cuts up uh, his, his concubine and sends her out to all of the land. And uh, as a result, Israel comes up against Gibeah. And then they come up against the tribe of Benjamin. They destroy almost completely the tribe of Benjamin. And then they, they, they vow, no one's going to take uh, a Benjaminite as a wife, and we're not going to give our daughters to them. So it's like, okay, well, Benjamin's going to die out because they don't have enough women to continue. So then the solution they have is, well, we'll just let them steal women, and we'll steal some women for them, and then, you know, then they can have those women, and then they'll grow back. Well, that sounds like a real good plan, doesn't it? Uh, let's, let's just steal some women, uh, and that'll make everything better. You see how this is all just... And, and, and spiraling out of control. Uh, this whole storyline is just depressing to see how evil Israel has become uh, in these years following the conquering of the promised land. That they are now uh, degrading women, that they are now uh, raping and becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah, that they are now s just stealing women and stealing whatever they want and worshiping these idols. It really paints a horrible picture of Israel uh, that... that should stick with us throughout the many books that are to come in this story. Well, why is this all important? As we've looked through this book, you kind of see it started off with a generation that did not know the Lord. And so God judged them, but he remained compassionate toward them. And, and if they would repent, he would come in and save them, even though they're getting worse, they're getting worse, they're getting worse. And all the time, these judges are full of problems and full of weaknesses. They die, right? As long as they're living, everything seems good. They die, and everything falls apart. And really, the real problem in all this is Israel never learns from the discipline. Uh, they're disciplined over and over again. And, and then at the end of the book, they seem to point to the fact, well, there's no king in Israel, and that's the problem. And later on, they're going to call out to God, we need a king. And Samuel's going to say, God is your king. What are you talking about? That's not the problem. The problem is you don't submit to your king. You don't listen to his words and do, and do the things that he has commanded you to do. And God brings this up over and over again as he speaks to the prophets throughout the judges. Ultimately, though, in this book, we're given this picture of imperfect people uh, who try to lead God's people. And this is what it is. We are imperfect in our leadership. Uh, every man who steps up to lead is going to have faults, going to have problems, and going to distract people from what we ought to be doing. Uh, but it just kind of contrasts with the ultimate king that is to come, Jesus, who, who rules in justice and mercy and righteousness. So if we're going to apply this book, there's a number of things that we can use in this book to, to apply. Um, what do we do when life is prosperous? What do we do when we're given rest? Do we slack off? 
Uh, do we just refuse to study the Word of God and pursue idols? And uh, do we play religion and, and come up with new ways to, to worship God that are fun and exciting and make us happy and enjoyable? Uh, do, we, do we fight with each other uh, and become unjust in our fighting with each other and, and lose sight of God's mission and God's goal and God's purpose? Uh, this, is, this is what Judges shows us. This is who we are. This is what we do as things go good for us. I was talking to somebody this morning about the fact that whenever things are going good, I mean, this thing becomes, you know, just something to have uh, in case things start going bad. But as everything starts to go bad, we start thinking, hey, maybe we need to look into this a little bit. Uh, maybe we need to start thinking again about uh, the Word of God and, and our attitudes toward it. Uh, and maybe we need to open it up and see what it actually says and see if we're actually following after the ways of God or if we're doing things that are right in our own eyes. And I think ultimately that is the application of judges is we must be very careful not to be living life uh, just thinking about what we, what we want to be right as being right. Thinking, I can do whatever I want to do, or I can do whatever opportunity is laid before me. If God gives me this opportunity, surely he wants me to do it. Without realizing, Satan gives us those opportunities as well. Uh, that that is not necessarily what God wants us to do. We can't just flow through life, taking up every opportunity and going where the wind blows us. We have to continually be trying to serve the king that God has given us, that ultimate example that we need has been given, and we have to do what's right in his eyes instead of what's right in our own eyes. So that is the book of Judges. Again, I say uh, there's a lot more detail there. I tried to give you a little bit more detail than I uh, originally planned. I hope you don't mind a little bit more time uh, on the sermon. Uh, not really good invitation sermon, uh, but if there is anybody here who does need to respond to the Lord's invitation, it is always made available. Uh, if you have been living your life doing the things that are right in your own eyes and you now realize that's not the right life to live, you now understand that the hope is very slim for you and your relationship with God and you want to turn your life over to him, we want to help you in some way if we can. Please come as we stand and sing.